Welcome back to Body Talk. This is Echo of the Hawk, Part 7. Stay tuned. All right, well, we'll go ahead and resume here for the, for the final and long-awaited hour um, of our keynote with Walter Echohawk. Um, I've been asked to introduce uh, Walter Echohawk, and I'm intimidated by the very prospect of introducing him. Um, it's introducing somebody who needs no introduction. And in the last few minutes, I've been polling his family members for embarrassing facts about him. <laughs> and no one will tell me anything in, in true tight-lipped Echo Hawk fashion. <coughs> Although I have learned that, um, <laughs> I have learned that, like myself, actually, uh, Walter's father was in the Air Force. My father was also in the Air Force. And that the reason that the Echo Hawk family has no embarrassing stories about him is because they did not grow up with him in the same place. So there, there are stories lurking out there somewhere. Um, Walter has been a Native American rights attorney since 1973. He has been at the epicenter of the Indian rights movement since that time. He was one of the persons who was probably the most instrumental in the passage of the Native American Graves Patriation Repatriation Act otherwise known as NAGPRA, that we've talked about today. He also was instrumental in the passage of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act Amendments of 1994. He's litigated countless epic struggles on behalf of Native American tribes. And in the meantime, he's also become a really prolific author who's written a lot of really incredible books. Most people would ride off into the sunset with the accomplishments that Walter has done for himself. Walter instead has chosen to continue to write books and also to be working as a lawyer for several Native American tribes in the Southeast, including the Comanche tribe, in his position as of counsel to Crow and Dunleavy. I could not possibly do further justice to Walter in my introduction, so I'm just going to let him get on with it and give his keynote address on his latest book, In the Light of Justice. Thank you. Thank you, Carla, for that very kind um, introduction. And I'm glad uh, my family members didn't um, share any embarrassing stories tonight. <laughs> but uh, I'm very glad to be here. And I uh, thank each and every one of you uh, for being here uh, with me this evening. Um, uh, Carla for the fine introduction, uh, Kristen for the uh, invitation to speak. Uh, uh, there is a, an axiom in federal Indian law, and that is that all roads lead to Boulder. <laughs> um, <clears throat> not only because of this very fine uh, nationally known uh, law program here at the law school uh, with uh, some of the giants in federal Indian law that are on the faculty here, uh, but it's also home to the uh, Native American Rights Fund, uh, uh, founded at the very dawn of the uh, uh, inception of the uh, Indian self-determination policy in the year 1970, moving to Boulder in uh, 1971. And, uh, we have many uh, law firms here, a national, with a maintain a national practice in the field of federal Indian law. It's one of the few towns that, that uh, you can go to where uh, 
almost every other person you meet on the street corner is versed in uh, federal Indian law, uh, Indian water law, litigators. Uh, and um, I, so I'm very uh, glad to be back in Boulder um, and uh, very uh, honored to be here, very humble to be here to uh, uh, participate in this, uh, this forum here, which I think uh, uh, has really opened a brand new uh, vista, vista, I guess, you know, for uh, federal Indian law. We can, we can see a very vibrant uh, field of uh, international human rights law at this point, and um, um, I'm hoping that uh, our law professors that are here uh, the law students are here can uh, learn this language of uh, international human rights. You know, I think that that uh, uh, from this point, from where the sun now stands, uh, uh, that uh, field is uh, joined at the hip, I think, with federal Indian law. <clears throat> and uh, so I commend uh, the law school for um, uh, basically, uh, you know, hosting this, uh, this uh, conference. I think uh, law schools around the country now are starting to look at this UN declaration um, and the rights, uh, uh, human rights of indigenous peoples and uh, beginning to fathom the, uh, the, um, the great possibilities that lie out there, you know, for our Native American people. And so, um, I commend the law school for uh, engaging in that process, and I certainly learned a whole lot today, you know, being here. And I'm very pleased this evening to uh, provide a, a book lecture on my uh, new book, um, In the Light of Justice. Um, and uh, it is about a brand new legal framework for defining Native American rights in the United States. Um, it does basically three things um, in these pages here. Uh, first, it uh, examines the landmark UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is an international human rights instrument that creates a very comprehensive standalone framework for defining Native American rights as well as ind indigenous peoples around the world. In 41 articles, it lays out, I think, the new order of the day for 150 nations around the world. Secondly, uh, this book um, compares these UN human rights standards with existing U.S. law and policy to see how well our law and policy compares with these modern international human rights standards. And then thirdly, uh, the book urges our nation uh, to undertake a social and legal movement to implement these human rights standards into U.S. law and policy. <clears throat> and um, I think it's very fitting here in Boulder, one of the great centers for federal Indian law, to begin contemplating a legal movement to implement these standards emanating from Boulder, Colorado. 
Before I go much further, I have to say I'm very indebted to James Anaya, uh, Professor Anaya, for writing the foreword to this book. Uh, this brilliant uh, indigenous lawyer is currently the uh, UN Special Rapporteur uh, for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples at the UN, and as such is uh, the uh, point person, I guess, in the UN to assist nations in interpreting and uh, implementing this uh, UN declaration in countries around the world. And I've been in awe of um, James Anaya for many years, and I, and I was very intimidated when he agreed to write the foreword, because I knew I had to do a, a good job. But um, what I'd like to do uh, tonight is basically cover three areas with you. First, I'd like to talk about um, uh, why I wrote this book about this declaration. Secondly, I'd like to just briefly describe the uh, declaration for you and its new human rights framework. Thirdly, I'd like to uh, discuss some of the issues and findings that I made in my uh, uh, comparative legal analysis um, that I made in this book, uh, focusing especially on the need for these standards in the United States. And looking at uh, this evening, you know, some of the implementation challenges that I uh, looked at in the book as well for this generation and the next generation. <clears throat> and when we're done, I hope there's a time for question and answers, uh, as long as the questions aren't too difficult, and then we'll sign a few books, I think, uh, uh, out front there. <clears throat> I have to say uh, at the outset um, to disclaim, um, make a few disclaimers here about this book. Um, uh, first of all, being that uh, I am not, and I don't hold myself out as a uh, uh, international human rights uh, practitioner or legal expert. Um, I haven't practiced in that field. Uh, I was not uh, involved in the making of this landmark uh, declaration. Um, and this book is basically written from the perspective of a uh, practitioner of federal Indian law here in the United States, uh, written by myself that uh, uh, has uh, viewed this uh, UN declaration as uh, uh, a, a, a very significant development in the field of federal Indian law today, um, and perhaps a vehicle for strengthening our Native American rights today. Um, So at the outset, before I cover these three areas with you, I wanted to lay out the book's premise, or the premise of this book, and that is this. That this is a historic time for federal Indian law and policy. <clears throat> and of course, uh, we know uh, federal Indian law to be the current legal framework in the United States for defining Native American rights. We also know that federal Indian law has two sides to it. On the one, one hand, 
There's some very protective features uh, within federal Indian law, um, mainly the uh, inherent tribal sovereignty doctrine and the protectorate principles um, of Wooster v. Georgia that were discussed in great detail there. <clears throat> within these protective features, uh, since 1970, uh, we have witnessed the rise of modern Indian nations, as Professor Wilkinson has uh, uh, characterized it. We've seen a cultural renaissance. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we also have to acknowledge, as practitioners of, the, uh, of, of this area of the law, that there's no question that federal Indian law <clears throat> also has a dark side to it with some very distinct anti-indigenous features and functions that are seen in nefarious uh, legal doctrines, uh, in unjust uh, legal fictions, and a quite significant body of uh, race, racist uh, jurisprudence. Uh, together with some inherent tensions that can be found uh, within the body of uh, federal Indian law. And this dark side of federal Indian law holds us back as native people. It makes us ever vulnerable, keeps us poor. But today, we can very clearly see now two legal frameworks for defining Native American rights. Federal Indian law on the one hand, and this new human rights framework uh, that's laid out in this declaration. It reminds me of an old uh, Pawnee song about a spotted horse that you see out on the plains, very far away, and it's coming to us. It makes us feel good because we know it's bringing good things for us. That's what this declaration is. It's like that white spotted horse. And when it arrives, uh, we will have a new era of federal Indian law, federal Indian law will never be the same once that spotted horse gets here. And so the premise of this book is that today we stand at a crossroads <clears throat> between these two legal frameworks. And I believe that the challenge of our generation and the next generation is to save the best from our old legal framework, and there's some very vibrant protective features there, to be sure, and merge them with this new framework, and to synthesize them into a seamless, strengthened, more just body of law for the 21st century in a post-colonial world. So uh, with that premise in this book, let me turn to my first uh, task tonight.
<clears throat> basically why I wrote this book. And uh, as was mentioned, you know, I've practiced federal Indian law basically most of my life since 1973. But, uh, uh, and a dyed-in-the-wool um, domestic practitioner, I guess you could say. But uh, to me, there's three reasons that really motivated me here <clears throat> and uh, made me kind of want to explore these topics. The first is to the need to strengthen federal Indian law. Um, we have clearly witnessed a gradual weakening of our legal framework of federal Indian law beginning at least since 1985. Uh, court observers tell us that uh, we ha our Indian tribes have lost uh, over 80% of the cases that come before the high court, sometimes uh, in some terms as high as 88%, and uh, that trend continues in the uh, current Roberts Court today, which is bent on a judicial trend towards trimming back our hard-won Native American rights. And uh, in addition to that problem, uh, we have this uh, dark side in federal Indian law that compounds this problem. And our, some of our very leading legal scholars in our ranking law schools have studied this dark side of federal Indian law uh, and I've identified uh, these uh, nefarious legal doctrines, these in, in, uh, internal uh, tensions that we have between trying to be self-determination, de determining peoples on the one hand, captive on the other to uh, notions of colonialism and plenary power. You can't at once be self-determination and yet hostage to absolute plenary power. The two conditions are incompatible. Um, and so I think that that's not questioned at this point in any serious way. Um, but it just seems that uh, our litigators <clears throat> since 1970 have lived with the dark side of federal Indian law. I and my colleagues uh, um, basically took that legal framework as we found it. We didn't make it, but we took it and we tried to make the best of it, trying to coax the courts into uh, applying the most uh, uh, protective features of that legal framework uh, and living with this dark side. But these legal trends that we see in federal Indian law today, I think, have led many of us to ask, you know, is federal Indian law dead? And I wonder, as a practitioner, whether we've stalled out in recent years at the very doorstep of true self-determination, as that term is broadly defined in modern international human rights law. And it may be, I'll just advance this proposition, that Indian nations have come as far as we can come under this existing framework. And to advance any further, we have to turn 
and challenge that framework and make it more strong and more just. I think we saw that in the uh, campaign of uh, black America to overturn the law of segregation that was given to us by the Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson. They litigated to, under that existing legal framework all the way to 1950 and finally vindicated their theories and came to that crossroads that yes, the, the schools truly must be separate but equal. And um, they had the wind at their back at that time and, and said to themselves, to advance any further, we have to now turn to a frontal assault upon the law of segregation to advance any further. And that's what they did, leading to Brown v. Board of Education. So these problems in the law have troubled me for many years. And um, I uh, believe that federal Indian law is in deep trouble today, that it does need a lifeline. And I think that this UN declaration may be that lifeline. And so I'm urging, and this book urges all of our profession and our tribal leaders Americans of goodwill to look to this declaration, perhaps, to make our uh, legal culture more just as it pertains to Native Americans. The second reason I wanted to write this book <coughs> was because of these numerous hard-to-solve social ills that we continue to see today in our tribal communities across the country. These are shocking socioeconomic gaps between Native American uh, people and our non-Indian neighbors um, in terms of the lowest life expectancy in the nation, the biggest, uh, highest rate of poverty, poorest housing, uh, poorest uh, medical care, mental health care, the highest rates of uh, violence in the nation, highest suicide rates, unemployment. Uh, these social ills have lingered for so long uh, that they're seen as normal and they threaten to become permanent. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we account for these shocking inequities? I think that uh, our social uh, science uh, researchers will have looked at these uh, hard-to-solve social ills through the lens of, of uh, historical trauma and see them as um, unhealed wounds that have uh, come to us from our legacy of conquest the history of dispossession, warfare, acts of genocide, subjugation, marginalization. These are the end products that we see from that legacy today, also end products under our existing law and social policy as well. These, this UN declaration is specifically designed to solve these 
hard to solve social ills through a human rights framework and to redress the inherited effects that we, all of us, have inherited from that legacy of colonialism in a human rights framework. So I felt a need to study this new framework as a prescription for these ills. Thirdly, um, I felt a need to help educate the public and help educate Native America about this declaration. This was largely, even though it was in the UN for more than 20 years, and we have to pay tribute and bow to the uh, pioneers, the indigenous pioneers that went to the UN, the International Treaty Council, um, Indian Law Resource Center, NARF, NCAI, Navajo Nation, numerous uh, tribes that um, uh, went to the international realm and secured this declaration, this landmark declaration. But it was largely unheralded, uh, an unheralded event. And when President Obama approved it in the year 2010, I think it caught our nation by surprise. It caught our tribal leaders with their shaps down, so to speak, most of whom had not read this document. Our tribal attorneys were not versed in that or international human rights law. And since the year 2010, our nation, our Indian tribes at, at ver the various law school conferences, NCAI, tribal leaders forums, have uh, undergone a self-education process to begin informing ourselves about this new legal framework for defining our rights and begin to uh, fathom some of the possibilities here. And I felt that a book of this nature, uh, sort of our, um, providing baseline data, uh, some reconnaissance level uh, legal analysis would contribute to that self-education process. And so uh, for these reasons, um, I spent about um, almost a year in, in writing these pages and researching them. And I learned that uh, uh, how little I really know about um, the complex and very vibrant uh, field of modern international human rights uh, law and work in the international realm. Let me turn next to this uh, brief, very briefly, because I think most people are versed in the declaration here. But very quickly, it, uh, there's just seven areas that I wanted to highlight and underscore for you. Uh, first is that this declaration lays out minimum human rights standards for protecting the survival, dignity, and well-being of indigenous peoples worldwide. <clears throat> um, and as I mentioned, it's been approved by 150 nations around the world. Uh, and I, I think it's the new order of the day. Um, our nation approved it uh, in the year 2010. So technically, it's already a part of the policy of the United States. But it remains to be implemented. 
The second point I wanted to make is that it contains authentic aspirations of indigenous peoples. If you're an Indian law uh, practitioner or a uh, scholar, uh, you can see in this declaration all of the issues that we work on and that we litigate toward. And know that these are authentic aspirations because they were written in large measure and negotiated by indigenous peoples. Thirdly, um, I think it's very important to note that these are comprehensive standards in that they are a standalone framework for defining our rights as native people, the full range of our rights. All of our aspirations are addressed in this document. Property, political, civil, economic, social, cultural, religious, environmental, it's all here. It's all in here, founded on our self-determination framework. Um, and the rest of these uh, articles in here are sort of corollary to the self-determination principle. In these comprehensive standards, this document, and I think this is very important, says that these human rights are inherent rights. That means that the UN didn't give these rights to indigenous peoples. These are rights they already had that arose from our indigenous cultures, histories, institutions <coughs> that are inalienable, indefeasible human rights. The kind of rights that nations were formed to protect the kind of rights that are larger than a nation. And when you inject the human rights principle into any controversy, you're immediately strengthened. Your position is immediately strengthened. So these are inherent human rights, what we're talking about here. And <clears throat> these are rights that were not made up by the UN, but were rather were pulled from the larger body of modern international human rights law and articulated in here, this document just simply shows us how to interpret this larger body of law in the unique context of indigenous peoples. And further, <clears throat> these inherent, inalienable, indefeasible human rights are based, according to this document, upon a value system or a foundation of justice, good faith, equity, equality, um, a far more just system of values than is found in federal Indian law, especially the dark side of federal Indian law. The fourth uh, point I wanted to make here is that these rights under international law are not considered new rights or special rights for indigenous peoples, but rather, as I mentioned, simply uh, standards pulled from this larger body of law that tells us how to interpret this larger body of law in the situation of indigenous peoples so that indigenous peoples have the same human rights 
that the rest of humanity already enjoys. Fifth, in this, in, 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 I, I wanted to mention some of my findings in this book um, were twofold. Um, first, that uh, many of these UN standards are largely compatible with U.S. law and policy in its finest hour and at its very best. Um, we see some compatibility there. And that shouldn't be surprising uh, given the core American values that arose from the human rights principle that were written into the Declaration of Independence. Also our uh, Indian self-determination policy that's been our policy here since 1970. And if we look at our legal culture from the 10 best cases ever decided, uh, we can see that uh, the impact here would be to strengthen those cases and make, make them more reliable. Um, our nation, I think, embarked upon a process of strengthening Native American rights all the way back in 1970 with this Indian self-determination policy. But this UN declaration shows us how to complete that process. But I also found at the same time that uh, uh, many areas of our existing law and policy fail to comply with these UN standards, that we need to uplift them so that they comport with each and every one of these standards. And a lot of that analysis is laid out in this book here. The sixth uh, point that I wanted to make about this new framework is that um, <clears throat> this declaration asks each nation to implement these standards in partnership with indigenous peoples, in consultation and cooperation and good faith with native people. This is not a legally binding treaty that is self-enforcing, uh, that federal courts have to enforce, even though it does contain uh, norms, customary norms in, in, in international human rights law that are part of our federal common law. And also, uh, there's probably a lot of uh, principles and standards in here that are also uh, embedded in UN treaties to which the uh, human rights treaties to which the US is a party. So this establishes a very strong legal framework for simply uh, implementing these standards and domesticating these uh, UN standards into our law and policies here. But it has to do it in partnership. The US is supposed to uh, provide technical assistance and funding to do it. The seventh point I really wanted to make was, you know, how was this made? Of course, uh, I don't want to go into a lot of detail. There were many uh, people here today that were actually involved in the making of this historic document. Uh, it took a lot of uh, years, and I think we just simply have to bow 
to them, including uh, Mr. Kim Gottschalk that is uh, here today, you know, for his legal work in that field. Um, let me turn to the need for these standards now in the United States. As we begin thinking about implementing these standards in our nation, the threshold question for all Americans of goodwill, including our tribal leaders, uh, is why do we need these standards in the United States? Aren't we the leading democracy? Are you saying we have injustice in our midst? And it's true that uh, our nation was uh, birthed on the human rights principle. It's a core American value. And though uh, we might not have always lived up to it in the growth of our democracy, these values have always impelled us to self-correct on these torturous detours in American history. But many folks today will admit that, but in looking at the Native American uh, situation, uh, think that we're not responsible for healing the past, are we? We didn't personally uh, commit these uh, appalling acts of injustice. It's unfair to ask me then to try to heal that past. Other Americans of goodwill um, will ask, well, isn't international law ineffective or unenforceable? Which I think is a myth, which I used to believe in. Besides a lot of folks, especially in Oklahoma, they don't like the UN. We don't want to be bossed around by the UN or international law. <coughs> Others will say, why can't we just use our existing law and policy, our Bill of Rights, and treat everybody alike? Um, and others will say, well, we have federal Indian law. It's a very comprehensive body. Why can't we just look to federal Indian law to heal these problems? So a lot of the chapters in this book address these questions. If we can't, as advocates, answer these questions in a compelling way to an American of goodwill, um, and meet these concerns, and we might as well fold up the tent and go home. <clears throat> but this book, it explores um, four reasons that I saw for implementing, or the need for implementing this uh, declaration. First, legal. Second, uh, political. Third, social reasons. And fourth, environmental reasons. And. Um, I would hope that going through these reasons, we will come to the conclusion that there is a compelling need to implement these UN standards in the US. As far as the legal reasons, um, <clears throat> we have this need to reform and strengthen federal Indian law. 
that I've already talked about <clears throat> to uh, root out the dark side of federal Indian law, that body of law that is amoral, the foundational cases in federal Indian law that define Native American rights, expressly eschew abstract principles of justice and questions of morality when defining Native American rights. And it's produced an amazing uh, prevalence of unjust cases in a, what is a amoral body of law that is bereft of the human rights principle. And I think that this book shows, uh, and any uh, reconnaissance level legal analysis will show that much of our law and social policy, including the free prior and informed consent standard, uh, that our law and policy here in the US just simply doesn't comply and we have to uplift it in the work of this generation. Secondly, there's the social reasons. That is this legacy of conquest and these hard to solve social ills that I've talked about uh, earlier. Um, I think that uh, those cry out to be healed in a program of national reconciliation in a human rights framework. And that's precisely what this roadmap does for our nation, so that we can move beyond that legacy once and for all as a, a more strengthened and unified nation and more just nation. Third, I think we have uh, political problems related to how, how do we uh, how best to incorporate indigenous peoples into the body politic, the Indian problem. Ever since our nation set about colonizing the Indians, the question that has always perplexed our nation is, what do we do with the Indians after we've taken everything? How do we incorporate them into the body politic? And we've had historically these zigzagging attempts to do that. Any, everything from the Wooster uh, framework of uh, domestic dependent nations that exist in our country uh, as uh, federal protectorates to removing the Indians in the Indian removal movement, to exterminating the Indians during the Indian wars, to uh, placing them under uh, guardianship civilization policies, to uh, strengthening tribal governments, to terminating the tribal governments, and back to Indian self-determination, and the debate continues today. But this declaration shows us how to do it. It says that we got it right in this self-determination policy to bring Native people into the body politic uh, under the self-determination framework with our indigenous rights intact. So it helps us answer that political question. And then finally, we have these environmental problems that uh, Rick Williams' prayer alluded to uh, for Mother Earth. And I think that, uh, that uh, we have a growing environmental crisis here. It's gotten worse, not better. 
and we just can't solve it. Uh, this global warming, we live in a warming world, uh, we see a mass extinction event going on, and we just can't solve it. Why? We have no land ethic or sea ethic. We don't know how to comport ourselves to the natural world. We don't have a moral compass to do that. We've not been able to get Leopold's uh, land ethic that he uh, asked us to try to get as the product of a mature society. And we don't have anything in our Western traditions or our historical uh, religions that uh, can teach us how we're supposed to, as humans, uh, comport to the natural world. And we have to look to the indigenous peoples, their primal religions, their uh, hunting, fishing, and gathering uh, cosmologies and value systems teach us. These are the oldest worldviews of the human race that were wired into our human biology as we spread across the planet. They teach us how to do that. <clears throat> and I think that there's a congruity between protecting these cultures and worldviews, these indigenous habitats, the environmental integrity of the, these uh, indigenous habitats, which are required under these standards, and empowering the native people um, so that uh, they can share these values with us. And then perhaps we can incorporate them alongside our own and forge an American land ethic. Without that, we just simply don't have the political will to solve this environmental crisis, this economic will or social will. It's too expensive, too many changes in our behavior. Scientists have not been able to uh, uh, motivate us to do that. We need a land ethic and we need native people at our side to forge one. <clears throat> As I close here, I want to just turn to some implementation challenges. And uh, would just uh, direct your attention to the uh, James Anaya's uh, report on the United States. Uh, again, he's the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. He came to the United States on an official mission in the year uh, 2012 to consult with the United States government, federal agencies, uh, Indian tribes, uh, native uh, leaders, uh, to, I, to find out about uh, the situation of uh, human rights for native people here in the US and maybe to provide some recommendations to the United States government about how to uh, uh, comply with the UN uh, declaration. And uh, he uh, came up with a report, an official UN report entitled The Human Rights Situation of Indigenous Peoples in the United States in 2012. Go to the computer and download this uh, report. Um, 
and read it as a starting point for implementing uh, this declaration into our law and policy. This report, I think you will see when you read it, is one of these rare uh, evaluations, I think, of U.S. policy that comes along once in a rare while that can and will become a catalyst for change. It's all in there in his report. Uh, he found after his um, hearings and consultations that significant challenges exist in the United States to overcome our legacy of conquest and meet these minimum standards. He determined that existing federal programs need to be upgraded, made more effective, that new measures are required in a program of national reconciliation. Um, and he lists, uh, lists uh, problem areas in 10 areas, you know, uh, and uh, lays out a big task for our nation in this next generation to, to uh, uh, meet these challenges. And he lays out um, uh, specific recommendations for all three branches of the federal government. And I just want to call your attention to some of them to give you a flavor um, for the executive branch. He says that the uh, agency leaders need to identify and re remove any barriers to the effective implementation uh, of this uh, declaration, that the president should issue an executive order to all executive agencies uh, directing them to adhere to this declaration in their decision-making pertaining to Native Americans. He, he recommends that all executive agencies uh, need to ensure that their decisions and consultation procedures are consistent with the declaration. He says that the president needs to follow up on Congress's apology to Native America that was issued in the year 2010 and pursue a national program of reconciliation. On Congress, he urges Congress to act promptly on indigenous proposals uh, for protecting their rights, which is a tall order inside the Beltway these days. He also tells Congress that it needs to hold hearings to educate members of Congress about this declaration, that it needs to enact legislation, enact legislative reforms and new legislation as required to achieve the reconciliation that he's uh, looking for here. He's saying that any legislation passed by Congress should be in alignment with these human rights standards of this declaration. And then he goes on to say that Congress should refrain from unilaterally extinguishing 
Native American rights. In other words, he's asking Congress to curb its own power uh, on the basis that the unilateral, and here we're talking about plenary power, uh, termination of indigenous rights is immoral and it flies in the face of the United States uh, international human rights obligations. Then he gives uh, directions to the federal courts, the federal judiciary. He recognizes their significant role that we all know in defining native rights, but he says that uh, the courts have, artic and I'm quoting here, have articulated grounds for limiting those rights on the basis of colonial era doctrines that is out of step with contemporary human rights doctrines. Values, I'm sorry. He goes on to say that the courts should discard such doctrines and furthermore adopt alternative jurisprudence consonant with modern international human rights values. A sea change in federal Indian law and saying furthermore the Supreme Court uh, uh, looked to the law of nations in the formative years of our republic when it was defining Native American rights. It needs to also do the same thing now to define our rights in the modern era. And so he's making big uh, recommendations here, you know, that I think will uh, fundamentally uh, call for some very sweeping changes in all three branches of the federal government. And I think that the ball is in our court here in this room to implement these standards. They're not self-executing or self-implementing standards. We have to implement them. Otherwise, they will remain beyond reach. And I think that uh, a first big step in doing that is to promote a focused national dialogue on the nature and content of human rights for Native Americans. Human rights. We've never had that dialogue of that nature here in our nation. But we need to have, be able to articulate human rights, uh, universal uh, principles of, of uh, human rights, correlate them with our core American values, and have a dialogue, a national discourse on that, to debunk the reasons not to act. Um, and so I think that uh, Law schools and our young students in Native American studies uh, uh, will have a big role in, in uh, arming our young people to be able to engage in a dialogue of that nature. Um, secondly, I think we have to build a national campaign to implement these standards. Our tribal leaders have to get out of the casinos for a minute and uplift their vision uh, to see this uh, uh, spotted horse out on the horizon that's coming our way and to lead our people 
from our existing legal framework into the light of justice in this new human rights framework for defining our native rights here in the United States. And we gotta have, we gotta have our tribal leaders come forward. We have to have our attorneys come forward, very armed and versed in this area of the law. We have to have our next generation of law students uh, trained in the parlance of uh, internet, modern international human rights law, as was articulated by Attorney Littlechild from Canada this morning. Um, and we have to put together the elements for a march towards justice. I've outlined some of the thoughts of, about that in this book, you know, looking at our experience in the tribal sovereignty movement and the black America's stride for equal protection under the laws. There's lessons to be learned there that we, we need to, uh, every man, woman, and child uh, in Native America and advocates and Ameri Americans of goodwill, you know, we need to mount the mother of all campaigns to implement these standards. And I think it's gonna be the work of a generation. And in conclusion, um, we also at the same time have to build some very clear and compelling um, uh, philosophical principles to guide such a campaign and anchor such a campaign, to motivate social action and to guide us, to steer us into the promised land here. But we don't have to look far to do that. We can look to our wisdom traditions that all of us have inherited you know, if you look at human history from day one all the way to the current day, you'll we'll see that uh, uh, man's inhumanity to man has known no bounds, that it's been a series of traumatic uh, events as human populations have uh, spread across the planet, uh, commit, uh, moving into new lands. We've seen atrocities, genocide, acts of war, dispossession, on and on and on. And so our, our, our wisdom traditions have, have come up to, uh, with uh, tried and true ways to heal wounds that we have caused. And they work as sure as the rain must fall. They exhort us to take the high road whenever we see a historical injury in our midst, regardless of the cause. And this high road, it just has, it's not rocket science, it just has five steps to it. The first being an injury has taken place. And in our nation, and what we're talking about is this legacy of conquest that's still seen and felt today. Secondly, I don't care what religious tradition you're from, they tell you whenever you've injured someone, you must go to that person and apologize. Prostate yourself on bended knee and ask for forgiveness. Very hard to do because we often demonize the people we have harmed and wish them ill. Easier to do that. 
So it's almost unthinkable, especially when we see arrogance in high places, to go to someone and apologize, much less to ask them to forgive us for what we've done. You know, very difficult to do. But you have to do that second step in order to clear the air, to relieve your guilt, to relieve their shame, to sort of begin clearing the air for a healing process. All of our traditions tell us that. And then we can move to the third step, which is to accept the apology and forgive. The burden then shifts in this instance to Native America to forgive. Also very hard to do, very hard to do. Some uh, uh, indicia of a trauma traumatized community, they can't find it within themselves to forgive. But that's probably the most highest uh, spiritual uh, human power that we have to forgive and all of our traditions exhort us to do that, this forgiveness. At which point we go to the fourth step. Its burden shifts back in this healing process to number four, to perform acts of atonement. Acts of atonement, to wipe the slate clean as best we can. We know we can't turn back the hands of time, but we can do everything in our power to correct the situation. This we do willingly because we want to. Our apology was sincere and um, so we do these acts of atonement which are laid out basically in this UN declaration. Once that is done, we move to the step five which is healing and reconciliation. At that point we have done everything that humans can do that our traditions have taught us and we have wiped the slate clean. We truly sit at the center of human compassion where I can honestly say I am you and you are me and we are one. That's what our wisdom traditions uh, teach us. And uh, I think we only need to look that far. And this is, a, I think, a compelling uh, uh, philosophical uh, framework within which to motivate uh, ourselves and to motivate our um, Americans of goodwill, you know, to move forward, you know, uh, and to implement these standards into our laws and policies. So with that, um, I thank you, Kristen, again, for the opportunity to present, and uh, uh, that concludes my remarks. Thank you very much. I believe we've got time for a question or two, probably very short, uh, Carla, <laughs> given the lateness of the day. We'll take one question. Make it a good one. Glenn. Mr. Glenn Morris. <clears throat> Thank you. I want to commend you for the release of your book and your contribution to the 
body of uh, literature um, in this field. Um, your analysis relies heavily on this uh, human rights framework. And um, I know that you know that there's a body out there of literature that's quite contentious about that. And I, I refer specifically to Karen Engel's book uh, from 2010, in which she suggests that, from the, she's from the University of Texas Law School, um, and she suggests that um, the human rights framework that you seem to embrace in your book has actually softened the original framework of decolonization, self-determination, that not only guided the, um, the indigenous people's movement in the 1970s to go back to the UN, but really guided earlier people like Descaje from the Kiuga Nation or Ratana from the Maori people in, in New Zealand in the 20s. And because uh, the decolonization um, framework of self-determination was international in scope. But the um, human rights framework is more individual-oriented and, 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 and tends not to focus so much on collective rights. Um, I know that you don't, you don't go that far, but there are some who suggest that that shift in the debate over the Declaration over 20 years move the declaration from this strong international approach for indigenous peoples to decolonize from this enclave brand of colonialism to a more domesticated form of self-determination as embodied in U.S. federal Indian law, in the Indian Self-Determination Act of 1975, for example. And so um, we heard from Kevin Washburn this morning about how the United States actually continues to view itself as uh, one of the practitioners of best practices in the world. Even though I know that you don't agree with that, the U.S. government believes that. And it continually says that, said that at the Working Group on Indigenous Populations, says that at the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. He also mentioned this next September there's going to be a meeting in New York at the UN called the high-level plenary meeting that they're deceptively calling a world conference on indigenous peoples in which states are getting together to decide what are the best practices for indigenous the implementation of the declaration the United States believes and has consistently said in all of these bodies embracing that human rights framework that um, I'm sorry for the long-winded question but, but, but it's really important for me to understand your position about this because of your um, contribution here. Um, that the United States says that um, the declaration must conform to federal Indian law and not the other way around. And you seem to be suggesting the, the opposite. That federal Indian law needs to be challenged to conform to the standards of the declaration. So I'm wondering if you could just address some of those questions that I've posed, this conflict between the original um, philosophy of the um, decolonization model of self-determination versus the human rights model, which is mostly a domestic autonomy model, and, and also this conflict between what the United States has consistently said it's willing to do under the Declaration and what indigenous peoples aspire to do under the Declaration. Thanks.
Thank you. Glenn, those are very good questions. And I, I think that uh, certainly uh, all of those questions need to be uh, looked at internally in Native America. I think that uh, um, I would view uh, the uh, self-determination and the realm of human rights here as a further step in decolonization. And um, that, uh, that um, we are talking about here the collective rights of indigenous peoples, you know, in a human rights framework, uh, not individual rights. Well, I guess you can have individual rights as a subset, but primarily collective rights. Um, and I'm looking at uh, and advocating that we need to um, uh, change our domestic federal Indian law to, to uh, strengthen it by importing these, these, uh, these human rights that are described in the Declaration uh, into our domestic law and policy. And I, I think that, uh, you know, if the, uh, if the uh, Supreme Court had to apply these principles, for example, to resolve some of the uh, uh, cases, the 10 worst cases ever decided that I analyzed in my last book, the outcome would have been totally different and we would have no dark side of the of, uh, federal Indian law. I think that we have to proceed very carefully here and I think our legal scholars uh, have to uh, help us to, uh, de uh, you know, there's been a lot for a lo long time in federal Indian law, there's been this concern about the gradual weakening of federal Indian law. One school of thought uh, being uh, uh, we need to decolonize federal Indian law and um, uh, get rid of this dark side and um, do something different. Uh, but I've never seen the answer of how we would replace that. You know, what would we replace it with? Well, I think this declaration shows us what we could replace that with. Uh, then this other school of thought is, no, we got to keep our existing legal framework, even if it's got a dark side, because we don't want to stray from it. We're fearful what the Supreme Court would do. We've seen it stray from some of these principles, and we don't like the result. I think that this declaration provides us with an alternative way to replace this dark side of our federal Indian law and, strength and strengthen it make it more just in, in this next generation. And so, uh, and along the way, uh, we, we have to, we have a whole bunch of uh, Plessy v. Ferguson kinds of cases that are still the law of the land today. Johnson v. McIntosh and on and on and on, you know. And our litigators shouldn't be cowering in fear of the Supreme Court and, and huddling, or Indian country shouldn't huddle against this assault by the Supreme Court. You know, we have to turn and confront that and overturn these cases uh, if we're going to advance any further, you know, because it's my view that we've come as far as we can riding this horse and we've got to change it. And I just look at this declaration as a lifeline to doing that. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know about uh, declaring independence, you know, I don't know if that, uh, you know, in the decolonization movement, if, if that means 
indigenous peoples have a human right to succeed, um, you know, from a, a, a colonizing power. I think in an ideal world, they, they ought to, or they ought to have a right to succeed from any political order that does not recognize their human rights. Um, but I think by and large, most of your commentators, I think on this declaration say that this self-determination that they're talking about here is to be exercised uh, on a parallel track, you know, with the existing sovereign, sovereignty of nation states. In fact, there's um, um, our, uh, savings clauses at the end of that that do that. So I think we're kind of stuck with it. I think we can still advocate for it, but um, um, I think for our situation in the United States and hopefully Native, uh, Native Hawaiians, maybe uh, we, have, uh, we have a framework now that we can look at, that we can um, possibly utilize to strengthen our, our uh, uh, long-standing problems that we have. So I don't know, uh, but these are the kind of questions, Glenn, that I think that uh, we have to do a searching analysis. We don't want to do ill to our current situation, and I think it's going to be a big challenge uh, not, uh, for, I think, our legal scholars to uh, develop what I mentioned earlier, see, uh, taking the very best from what we got, adding it to this new to create a seamless, more just uh, body of law. We need our le finest legal minds to focus on that. And uh, a lot of internal vetting and discourse and debate about uh, to make sure that we don't misfire. Um, we've got this um, uh, declaration. Um, it's easy to make bad case law if we just run out and file uh, cases and start losing them, you know. So we've got something precious here, and I think we want to shepherd it very, very carefully, what we do have that has come to us from the international realm. So, Rick? This should be a real easy question. Um, in your book, do you give us direction about uh, implementation regarding uh, the issue of states' rights? <clears throat> well, I think that uh, a lot of this declaration asked the United States to voluntarily curb its own power over Indians in the, say, the plenary power doctrine. Um, it asked the Supreme Court to say to itself, it's no longer the courts of the conqueror. It can no longer um, divest um, our right to self-government, self-determination at its own whim. And uh, so at, at face value, it's kind of asking them to do a lot. But I think uh, in my book, I thought, well, it's kind of like the state's rights principle, you know, uh, that, that there is an acceptable limit to federal power. And I think the acceptable limit to federal power over Native America is circumscribed by this human rights principle. We can no, no sooner uh, take away tribal self-government or intrude upon it than we could engage in slavery or piracy or sexual trafficking or acts of genocide. That's, this, that's the kind of rights that we're talking about here. Inherent, inalienable human rights that are 
larger than the nation. And that's quite uh, a new way of uh, reconceptualizing Native American rights because uh, none of our cases and probably none of our statutes are imbued with this human rights principle. You know, we have some legislative history in NAGPRA, for example, said so this is human rights legislation. <clears throat> but by and large, our legal framework is bereft of the human rights principle. You can't find it in judicial discourse, in judicial precepts or principles, you know, it's a totally uh, amoral uh, legal framework. But I think James Anaya's uh, recommendation, you know, that Congress, you know, has to sort of curb in, rein in the exercise of its power, is doing nothing less than a asking Congress to uh, curb its own power in a similar vein that it would no sooner um, destroy or prey upon or exploit or colonize the states, you know, in the states' rights principle. So it's sort of an anal analogous uh, way of looking at curbing uh, federal power in a voluntary uh, way that's looked upon as quite sound, you know. So with that, uh, I hope that the great spirit, you know, will be at everyone's side in the coming uh, days, and especially the students that are here and everyone. Thank you very much. Walter, we can't thank you enough for such moving words. Um, several of us were jotting notes and chit-chatting about how we're seriously inspired to take up the charge that you have described. And I think that is the charge for our generation. So thank you for laying it out so generously. Um, I've read Walter's book every single page several times, highlighted, dog-eared, et cetera, and I commend it to all of you. Um, and finally, thank you all for being here. You really put in a, a very full day. It was an incredible conversation, and you all really made it um, what it was. So I hope we're all inspired to go out um, and do good work and truly make this the era of indigenous people's human rights. So thank you.